have to be honest tonight. I'm not completely sure that I have a linear progression through some of the ideas that I have, that I would love to share with you. Uh, would feel safer if I did. <laughs> I'm really struck by the quality that I think I'm perceiving of, of attention that's in this room right now. <laughs> yeah, thank you for your practice. I don't know if anyone else, I mean, if you all had the chance to come and sit up here. I mean, not that the visual sense is the only sense to know these things from, not at all. You know, we tend to be very overly visually oriented modern folks, right? But, um, so it's not only my eyes that I think that are recognizing this, but there's some, yeah, we've, we've done some work together these three, four days. Probably, you, probably you've been count. Some of you've been counting, right? <laughs> Does anybody count how many days? Well, I said three or four. How does she not know it's four? It's been four, and there's that many more. <laughs> there's that many more left. This this famous retreat when I was sitting over there, um, I had this little chart in my room, and I was kind of. <laughs> and it's funny that I don't know if you have the same word for the same job in 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 this country. Um, do, you, do you call it a quantity surveyor? Oh, it's part of, it's a, <laughs> it's a function, <laughs> my uncle was a quantity of it, uh, it's a function in, uh, I think it's like a sort of, I'm not sure, I'm completely sure what they do, but they, what does a quantity of it do? <laughs> Work out the amount of materials needed in a construction project. Do you get that? They work out the amount of materials needed in a construction project. Anyway. Thank you. That's very good. Um, it suddenly struck my, across my mind that term, um, we use that term in England, um, for something that we can do on retreat, being a quantity surveyor, right? Either surveying the quantity in terms of counting how many days have gone and how many are left, quantifying how long, how much of this sitting has gone and how much is left, right? So this sort of counting mind. Also, quantity is really striking, the, the number of people who uh, give quantity evaluations to um, how many breaths they can be with. And it's, it's not a bad thing to do, but the quantity measure becomes a, 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 a function of numbers, of days, of time, of um, number of breaths, for example. So I just wanted to name that and also invite you into the possibility of uh, quality surveyors um, that something that will let us drop into uh, more timeless seeing and knowing is when we relinquish our dependence on measuring things in horizontal time, right? And I know we do, I, you know, especially when the going gets tough. Time, interestingly enough, if you check it out in your experience as you contemplate, time and the sense of the uh, reality of time arises together with a very real sense of self. You, and that's not some interesting philosophical thing you'll get to later. You'll know that in that moment in the sitting when you're, it's like, oh, had enough. So this is actually one of the examples I was going to give about Vedana. There I was in a different place sitting uh, early on in my practice and uh, sitting in a retreat center in England and... Uh, it was a t it was a small room uh, and and there was no almost no space between you and the person in the, in front the mats were uh, corner to corner so every every sitting somehow my eyes would open at a certain point and i think i could see the clock there was some clock visible somewhere and um and i'd see it was about 25 minutes into the sitting and my eyes opened it's like oh okay 
maybe I'm a, just a 25-minute kind of a girl, you know. <laughs> and, and what I, in terms of Vedana, where this is interesting is probably, and I'm pretty much guessing that what was happening was what I thought was not much is happening. What does not much is happening from an untrained mind perspective is I get bored, I separate, I get bored, I'm looking around for something else interesting. There's nothing much interesting in the meditation hall normally. Somebody's back, you know, have a little look around, scratch, whatever. Nothing much interesting. And so I have to, I'm looking for some kind of self-reference. See the clock, 25 minutes. And rather than, or because my mindfulness wasn't yet strong enough to resonate and make contact with that kind of neither pleasant nor unpleasant, right, that so-called neutrality, I bounced off of it, looked at the clock, and before I knew it, I had made a conclusion about myself. There was no big self-story in that moment where there's just breathing out, breathing in, sensing, it's getting quiet, it's getting quiet, and then ping! Ah, 25, Mm, yeah, I think it was 25 last time, that's probably... Yeah, maybe I'm just 25. Maybe I should go and look online. Well, there wasn't an online then. Maybe I should look in a brochure uh, for uh, a retreat centre where they just schedule 25 minutes sittings. <laughs> and it'll probably be right up my street. I'll, I'll, I'll fit in really well there. Hmm. Yeah, maybe all these other people, they like 45. They're 45 types and I'm a 25 type. You know, and we start... It's not even a very problematic worldview, is it, in that moment? It's not like major misery. It's just (laughs) tedious, repetitive, and doesn't really lead onward, right? So the sense of self arises together there with a sense of time. So let's look at the story so far a little bit, how we've been unpacking this. Um... We've given days, some days, to this gathering and landing and settling and... Okay, okay, I'll stay. Mind does its thing. Oh, it's okay, I'll stay. Right? You, we gathered, you've done a lot of work, and hence, I think that's why I can sense, I would say, more presence in the hall, more presencing, more kind of weight of hearness. I outlined this trajectory yesterday of uh, coming to abide in the body, as body, through the body, with the body, from a process of healing our, many of ours, dislocation from the body, believing there's something better somewhere else, something more safe, more promising somewhere else, healing and restoring that connection, which takes time. And I just want to say a word about that before I name those other pieces in that trajectory. Um, this is a, a, a courageous work to restore our connection with body. And it, if, if we feel like we've abstracted to whatever degree we feel like we have, usually for very, very good reasons, some very personal, some from our history, some from the culture and the way bodies are perceived and conceived of, some, you know, with cultural roots that go deep. You know, one of the ways of... um, I read a very nice book recently about body, and it was actually a a neuroscience book. uh, And the first chapter was called A History of Antibodies. Um, And he's a Western person, British person, and he traced, I think very skillfully, from the kind of inception early on in the uh, Greek um, story, in the Greek uh, civilization story, not the earliest part, but he traces this history of antibodies. Um, I'll just give you, if I brought it, a tiny couple of the, a brief history of antibodies. It's a really interesting chapter to see, in, in a sense, some of what's the inheritance, I think, that we might be in different places with, but, but, but really important to recognize the, the cultural part of that and how that then plays out with the ways we conceive and perceive of bodies. How we therefore, by implication, conceive and perceive of matter, 
to a brief couple of pieces from him. He said, this, and it's his take on it, but I, you know, see, see if you agree or maybe you don't know the history, but see how, if you feel the implication of this, right? Um, he said, whatever esteem for the body, you know, you sometimes think of the Greeks as having this esteem. And the reason I'm talking about European culture is because it has a major dominating effect everywhere, right? He says, whatever esteem for the body that was in the Greek culture in the beginning, he said, around the 5th century, it was overtaken by a disdain for physicality. The idea came into being that the wisdom and intellect could have nothing to do with the mere brutality of bodies. Can you see that? Even as I say, it doesn't even feel just like I'm telling a story. I don't know if anyone else can feel that. Right, if you, if you know that split. So in the beginning of the rise of intellectual philosophizing, which of course is many beautiful gifts of that, absolutely. This is not anti-intellectual path and it is not anti-explorations and ways of seeing that have borne fruit. It is a path that wants to look at what is skillful, what leads to suffering and what leads to the end of suffering. And which perceptions... The Buddha taught us that perception is empty, meaning there isn't one inherent final perception of form, of feeling, of um, consciousness, of patterning, of whatever the fifth one is that I'm missing out of that list. Perception. Yeah? Yeah. Um, They're empty. They don't exist on their own. There are perceptions that are skillful and there are perceptions that are not skillful. There isn't one final perception you're going to arrive at and retire. Done. So then he goes on to talk a little bit about the Christian inheritance. And this again is not anti-Christian. It's just pointing to the streams in that, that we may have inherited that do not serve. The body as sin's instrument was one of the uh, threads that we will have inherited, whether or not we think we're Christian or not, as inheritors of the whole Western stream. Even if we're convinced secularists, even if we're absolutely, no, 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 I don't go for any of that. Somehow that stream, we can't just, extricate ourselves from it. It's informed and is the basis on which that whole secular philosophy rests also. St. Francis, beautiful St. Francis, the lover of nature and animals, even he, and I don't, I don't, can't speak for what was inside his soul, referred to his body as his, the brother ass, like donkey. Now, maybe he really, really, really loved donkeys, but typically donkeys, <laughs> typically donkeys, he probably did, but typically donkeys get um, given that place in the story of not being that smart, right? At least in the stories I used to hear. So, in this story of antibodies, the, the instigation in the Greek philosophical intellectual rise Uh, that the association that higher is better, more abstract is better, and more eternal. Because after all, bodies are impermanent. Bodies, if we look at it from that perspective, will ultimately insult us. If we look at it from that very particular perspective. Purity and security existed from one perspective, one stream, a platonic stream, in a parallel realm of eternal concepts and ideas. To escape, you have to work your way upwards. Logic and reason beautiful in themselves. Rationality, yes, became yoked with ideas of sanctity, 
purity, truth. Breathe. <laughs> Does it ring any bells? It's not just like a story that I'm telling, a hope. That there's something of that reaching up for the higher, the purer. That even if intellectually we now say to ourselves, no, no, I don't want to still do that. I don't want to still do that to my body. I don't want to look at others with disdain. I don't want to look through the lens of, hmm, this is the kind of messy, complicated realm of bodies. I'm going somewhere else. Thank you. I don't want to do that. But we vote with our attention. We might intellectually, you know that lovely thing Akinchino had last night, the gap between what we know and how we're able to live out. We might know that we don't want to live through that lens because we see the suffering for others, for ourselves, for body. We might even understand the knock-on effect with the ways we perceive matter as something that we can kick and do stuff with and take for ourselves and use. And um, But we vote with our attention. We don't only vote with the intellectual worldview that we carry. We vote moment to moment by where we place our attention and how we offer our attention and what views are shaping and framing and acting as guiding rails, whether we see them in our mind or not, are acting as guiding rails for what we deem as worthy to pick up with attention and what we deem as not. So that's a a brief history of antibodies. So the story so far for us on this retreat, this restoration of our attention with the body, and that can go deep. It's not like we we do it once. This body is, Buddha referred to as fathom long, you know, fathom, that old measurement, however long a fathom is. Well, probably about as long as one of these, right? (laughs) This fathom long body. I'm slightly probably less than a fathom. um, (laughs) This fathom, probably he was taller, as my guess. Um, this fathom long body, yes, this fathom long body, but it's actually unfathomable. No anatomy, philosophy, art, science will wrap itself around what one of these is. Yes, we can have useful lenses for looking at it, and medicine is a beautiful lens and way of understanding that has served us well and is one lens, is one way that the science that has served us so well in many ways, which started off as a methodology, humbly a new way of looking at things, became a dogma and cornered the market on truth. Restoring. This isn't just a one-hit moment. Oh, I'm restored now. This body is unfathomable in its fathom-long length. It is unfathomable. Can you wrap your mind around one of these? And if you're in any doubt, make this concrete. My most lovely and most... Uh, I don't want to be down on atheists, but he ha- maybe I'll call him... What will I call him? My lovely and suspiciously doubtful modern brother. <laughs> one of my brothers. I have many brothers. Uh, I love him very much. He has a beautiful social conscience and I love him, but he's fiercely dogmatic in his... You know how that goes, right? So uh, when his first daughter was born and uh, he came to my parents' house and I was there and uh, I I knew he... There was more to him than that one view. Can you hear okay? It's it's going, isn't it? It's wiggling off. You probably know what I'm going to say about my brother when he saw his daughter. How's that? That's better, isn't it? Yeah, good, good. <laughs> okay. Um, do do that if I if it slips off again, please. So there he was, and he started to say. I think he was present for the birth. Um, it was a cesarean birth and he was present for the birth and he came back to my parents' house in his wanting to share the news and 
I think I heard him use words like miracle, and uh, um, he was overcome with um, him. He, he couldn't he couldn't contain all what was moving through him in wit- having witnessed this something that we might have ways of explaining. Yes, we can explain. You get one of these by various processes, right? Because <laughs> you can. There's many ways that, that can happen, right? All right. Yes, but explanation, you know, and how we like to explain. Many of us, explanation. If you look at the root of the word, explain. Plain means flat on the planes, right? You explain something. You basically flatten and say you know what it is now. Yes, we can explain. It's one way of looking. And there he was, kind of overcome with... (laughs) I'm going to play, be poetic if you don't mind. He was overcome with the Holy Spirit. And uh, he didn't say that. And couldn't help himself, really, in this sort of reverence um, for this miracle that had occurred. So this restoring of our attention, letting our bright attention, which it can be very well, it's touching me now, it's doing the opposite. And as it touches me, what happens? Scratch, scratch. (laughs) And what's the Vedana of scratch, scratch? (laughs) In your ear. Yeah, I do want to know, thank you. So I'm going for the middle way between scratch, scratch and disappeared. How's that? Testing, testing. Okay. I'll try not to wriggle too much. Um, So this trajectory of, of restoring attention as we do the soothing, the settling, the nourishing, the suffusing as attention, bright attention, can start to suffuse our body. And suffusing to, at times you may notice the absorbing, almost all our senses can become absorbed in a, in a sense of a, a unity, of the whole field of bodily perception, and that has its own trajectory. So we studied this uh, abiding, coming to the body, and the cultivation. Remember the other night I talked about the goal of the path as the overturning, the complete overturning of a fundamental delusion that we don't even know we have about the nature of existence, then the nature of self and other and world. And in the service of that, we learn to abide and we also learn practices of um, many cultivations and investigation. And today we more formally began the investigation into Vedana, the investigation into the feeling tone that happens in every single moment, whether we're awake to it or not, of pleasant or unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So how did it go today on your hunt? I liked how Kinchino put it, on your hunt for Vedana. Yeah. Sometimes it can be really useful to give that task to ourselves for a whole day, a whole weekend, a whole week, that I'm going to intend to give my, that for, to be the frame of my way of attending to experience. Because what that will do is it trains a muscle. It trains a way of seeing experience that helps to unbind it, helps to unbind the way we can spin into the sense of self and other and time and world that catches us before we know it. Okay, So if you haven't yet, I really encourage that. So it becomes like a, a muscle or it becomes 
a lens, a way of attending to experience that will serve. Sometimes I think of practice like um, cultivating this instrument called a body, this instrument of perception. And like any instrument, it needs tuning up um, to, to, to play, actually. And practicing Vedana is like learning certain, let's say, uh, arpeggios on a, on a keyboard or certain chords or certain ways of engaging the instrument that will let that part and that way of um, seeing be able to be available to us. So it's really, really worth it. If at any point you feel like, oh, Vedana, that's a very dry but necessary kind of a practice. Anybody ever had that thought about Vedana? Um, no? Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Only one taker? Well, is everybody really excited by Vedana? Is everybody really... Oh, okay. Well, I don't want to disabuse you, but sometimes some people end up thinking, oh... Really? We're just going to pare everything down to pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Is that what existence is? Um, No. It's not what existence is. And it would be a tragedy if we conflated the practice of Vedana with a reductionistic view of matter and of bodies and of worlds. No, it's not the nature of existence. But if you have come into practice and think, oh, Vedana, I don't want to practice Vedana. I want to have a nice fantasy about something. Or we drag ourselves to a Vedana practice because the teacher said it was a good idea. And clearly the Buddha put it quite clearly on the map. Okay, I better do it. But it's, it's a little dry but necessary, like when you have to eat dry toast if you're sick it's good for you then maybe we need to check what view is behind and as a backdrop to that idea and I'll say more about that in a moment so Vedana Let's look a little bit more. I want to give some examples. This is such a liberating practice, potentially, if we're willing to put in the hours to, to really train that lens. It's so potentially liberating. Um, so I want to look at a few examples. N- when we don't know Vedana, when we don't know Vedana, Is it okay? Anybody need it to be closer? Okay. When we don't know Vedana and we're not interested to know Vedana, we will be taken for a ride. And it's not always going to be a nice ride. And it's going to be a compelling ride. We're taken for a ride. And in practice, what we're interested in is not being taken for a ride because we don't have any say in that. There's no mastery there's no uh, it's purely compulsive we're interested in more in riding right rather than being taken for a ride so first example one of my students who is and actually he's not sorry he's not my student somebody who's been on a retreat with me who would be very happy for me to share his story so about 10 years ago he came to a retreat and he was in a small group and he said and I knew him actually I also knew him personally Uh, outside of the retreat and he said um, oh I was here last year I said okay great and he goes and I left halfway through the retreat I said okay he goes because something you said in the small group really irritated me I said oh okay Um, (laughs) starting as I was starting to get hot like you know oh oh dear what's going to happen here hot hot unpleasant unpleasant right (laughs) that's how we can work with it So um, he was in a good mood by this stage. And he said, I left the retreat last year. And he said, it was really, he said, I'm really like a little bit like, not ashamed, but a bit chastened, a little bit chastened. He said, um, 
you said something in the small group. I got really angry. He said, and the next moment of mindfulness I had was when I was in my car halfway to Plymouth. <laughs> Plymouth, England. Right. And he said, I got a shock. He, he got a shock. He said, and he realized then, he said, there's no freedom in that. He said, so I've come back this year. <laughs> right? So I've come back this year. And he was committed and made the commitment to say, I really want to work at that place of contact where something happens. Sure, there may be a disagreement. Sure, I'm not going to say things perfectly or always attuned. It's okay to have that conversation. He might need to say something later if that's the case. But that wasn't the point in this case. In this case, he was taken, literally taken for a ride. That's a very extreme example, and he made the commitment then, there in the group with the others to, um, yeah, I really want to work there at that place of contact and really know if something is unpleasant, I want to know, I want to stay, I want to breathe with that, I want to make room for that, I want, I want the freedom that comes from not being compelled. And in that example, you can see that in, the, in reacting to the Vedana, it's unpleasant. He didn't see that it's unpleasant. He didn't like what was happening. He didn't see the building of the strong sense of, he's called Dave, hot, irritated Dave, probably bad Catherine, I'm guessing, is in the self-other view there in that moment. And probably the sense of world of the retreat center was probably like just some either hostile or stupid place. Right? Strong it can happen more subtly. In the example I gave, slightly more subtly, in the example I gave when I looked up at 25 minutes, yeah? Every 25 minutes I look up and then a little sense of self comes, oh, I'm a 25-minute kind of a girl. Yeah. Not terrible suffering, but the point of the practice is to go beyond, actually, those grooves, those ruts, those trenches that we fall into. Trenches where I get to be terrible in my mind. Trenches where I get to be the best. Have you got any of those stories? <laughs> Anyone have those arise? Looking around, opening your eyes. Yeah, I think I'm doing pretty good here. <laughs> Maybe I am the most radiant one in the room. <laughs> Right. Anyone have those kind of fantasies, or maybe you're not as narcissistic as that? But, right. Um, good, bad, or in between. The self-images that arise. You know, it's harder often to to see those ones because we don't always see the suffering in it immediately. In those ones where you get to be champion. Yeah, you don't always see the suffering in it as fast, but it's dukkha. It's dukkha, suffering, dis-ease. So then we have a practice and we're given a teaching to know Vedana as Vedana. So we study Vedana. And an example, here I am sitting and before I know it, oh, little, I don't know how it got there, a little image of my cat at home arose. My nice little lovely black cat arose, right? And without any mindfulness, without any reference or frame of reference, I could go right into that and maybe write you a lovely poem about my cat. Nothing wrong with that. Beautiful. But it may not be the point of what we're studying here. So this is not about ending creativity. It's about having more freedom and not having to go down the same tracks that are predictable. And I remember this screenwriter on a retreat in um, Israel, actually, a long time ago, and he was a creative person. And he, after four days, he came to the small, second day, he came to the small group and said, um, oh, I'm fine. My mind's very lovely and creative. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and he came on the fourth day to the group and he said, Help! help because nothing else is going on is there an end to this is there an end to this right 
so the cat arises and my practice is to know Vedana as Vedana. So I uncouple from the image in that moment and I sense what's happening right now. Oh, 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 right now there's a kind of softness here. And there's a kind of pull in my heart. Yeah, okay, how's it? Yeah. Ah, ple- oh, it's pleasant. It's pleasant. Pleasant. Yeah, but what about the cat? Uh, pleasant. <laughs> but maybe she's. Ple- oh, oh, now it's unpleasant. Wow, that just turned around really fast. Oh, unpleasant. Can you see? And maybe you know for yourself, it's, you know, this is powerful. This is really powerful. Let's look at another example. It's very quiet in your practice. You're breathing in and breathing out. You're here. It's really, really quiet. And rather than when it gets quiet, we might typically fall asleep or get bored or draw in some memory, bring it from somewhere or other to ruminate upon. You can stay because the lens of Vedana is helping you. Oh, wow, this is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Can I stay? Can I stay and see what happens? Can I stay as things seem to fade and get quieter and quieter and there doesn't even seem like there's much me, there's not a strong sense of self there. Neither is there a strong sense of other. There's this quietening and fading neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And that lens can help me stay and linger and follow and see what happens if I dare to keep attending when I am neither being confirmed or denied, when I am neither being praised nor blamed, I think I want to add one piece here, it, which is to just, if this feels relevant for you in your practice, particularly for maybe for experienced people, but not necessarily only for, is to check and see if at any point you are mistaking Vedana as a building block of reality in that kind of modernistic scientific view where we learn in high school that there are building blocks to reality called atoms, which um, once we find out about those, we found out the truth and everything else is made out of those things. right? Even if science has now gone beyond that, sometimes we can come into practice with the view that, oh, I can be this kind of neutral observer, observing things as they really are. And I just have to see them as they really are. And how they really are looks like they're Vedana. That's the final building block. That's the cause of suffering. If I could just stay at Vedana forever, I would never suffer again. No. The Buddha did not say Vedana was the final truth or the building block. Vedana, too, is empty. 
Vedana too is not self, meaning it does not have its own inherent existence. It is dependent on many, many other factors. So what that means is when you're practicing, don't stop with just the reduction and the quietening just a little bit of the spinning mind. Sometimes some of us will settle for, oh gosh, that's better. Gosh, unpleasant. It's unpleasant. Phew, I didn't have to spin into that horrible, miserable mess, complicated tangle called myself. Right? Phew, got it. Great, I just have to stay there. Don't stop there. Vedana too is not self. There isn't... The perception of Vedana is empty. Meaning something that in one moment can appear as unpleasant to us. The very same thing when my way of seeing it shifts, can become pleasant. So I won't say more about this at this point, but please don't stop with just that curtailing and slight reduction of that spin into that complicated mess called myself. Go further. Go deeper with that exploration especially if we wish to know an awakening that is consonant and faithful to the awakening of the Buddha and is an awakening for our times. And in our times where our perceptions of matter and of bodies has become flattened and soulless for many, Do not stop. Keep looking. So I'd like to invite you into a small experiment to end tonight in our last 10 minutes or so. Are you ready? So this is to bring our investigation um, into body, our body, your body, in this moment. So please take your seat um, as formally as you're able. Upright and gentle. And I invite you in this experiment to bring all your ways of knowing to the table. And I'll tell you what I mean by this. And you don't have to understand all of the categories I'm going to give, but just see how your body responds as I offer this. So part of our suffering of our modern uh, uh, era is where the Uh, rational empirical has become the primary and most validated way of knowing. And I want to include that one, absolutely, but I want to bring multiple ways of knowing here to the table for this experiment. Even if you may not know all of the ones, the categories that I give, just see how your body responds. Okay, so breathing in. And breathing out, let your weight drop to the ground. You're not going to be tested on this. This is a poetic and um, invitation to dance. And just as much as your body and your heart and your mind wish to play. Okay. Notice if you're tensing at all in your backside. Sometimes when play gets mentioned... Depending on our history with play, some of us go, oh, blimey, going to play now. I thought I was coming to a retreat center. 
just relax, drop your backside and let yourself take your seat really thoroughly. Welcome here. Welcome here in our work of restoration and in our work of timeless awakening. Welcome here. I invite to the table, please bring in whatever way is meaningful to you, your bright mind, your capacity to cognize and think and evaluate and assess and all the brilliance that you bring of cognition. You are welcome. Breathing out. Please bring to the table your heart. Yes, your emotional heart, your heart that knows how to resonate in relationship with the world, that is impacted and that impacts others. Please bring your emotional heart to the table. Breathing in and breathing out. Please bring your body and all the ways of knowing that your body partakes in, whether you have them online right now or they are forgotten or dismembered as a result of culture preferencing validation or non-validation. Please bring your arms and your legs and every cell of your body and all the ways our ancestors have known through the body, of the body, with the body. Breathing out and breathing in. And please bring to the table your imagination, your capacity to open the doorways and see more than what is obvious. All great leaps forward have come by those willing to risk the wildness of their imaginations. not just the imagination of your head, but of your body and of your belly and of your heart. Breathing in and breathing out. Please bring to the table your antennae, your instinct, your animal capacity to get wind of something that you want to follow, not compulsively, not on its own. Yes, we need the wisdom, but bring to the table your spiritual antennae that peak up and perk up when we're in the presence of something that rings true in some way or another. Bring your spiritual instinct to the table. Bring your aesthetic sensibility. Whether it is numbed a little bit in you, may it restore. But if it is available to whatever degree your love of aesthesis, of perceiving what is beautiful, without limiting that to any narrow ideas of beauty, And bring to the table your heart as an organ of knowing, its own kind of knowing. Bring your volition. Bring your energetics. Bring all the ways you know that I have no idea about. Bring them to the table as I read you a story. I'm going to read you a few stories. But please see if you can hear through every cell that you can bring to the table. 
And as you hear the story, see what comes online for you. So this is a story, first story, is a story I read in a modern post, uh, in, a, in a new kind of storybook about quantum physics. I'd like you to imagine a ruler. Do you call them that here? Yeah. 12 inches ruler standing on its vertical. Okay. And just per- perch that there in your mind. And I want you to, for a moment to imagine the atoms that we were taught about in high school physics. Maybe many of you have gone beyond this, but let's just put them on the table for a moment. And I'd like you to look into that atom deeper and deeper and deeper to smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller pieces beyond modern physics to what is called quarks and Planck distance and go farther and further and further and further into the degrees of smallness that are inferred these days. Little game. And now imagine this, up, this ruler on its vertical. It's a measure. And at the top is the measure of the furthest known external reaches of the cosmos that we currently know. And at the bottom of the ruler is the smallest inferred knowable reaches of the cosmos. Got that? Where on this ruler do you sit? The story that I grew up with, and I'm not saying this is the truth now, but the story I grew up with, remember with my 17-year-old friend one night looking up at the stars going, oh my goodness, we're so small and insignificant. Yes, that that's, can be a helpful story. Maybe it can check our grandiosity, but it seems to come also at the same time in an era of scrambling to prove ourselves. Come to the ruler, the human being on this ruler sits just above midway on that ruler. And the implication is that there is more smallness within us than there is bigness outside of us. There is more smallness inside of you than there is bigness outside of you. Sense your body. What happens as you hear this story? Notice if you just go up into the frontal cortex and go, That's fine. That's good. That's a good response. (laughs) But just sense the whole of your body. Sense your imagination. Sense your heart. Sense your body. Sense your belly. Sense your instinct. Sense yourself on the ground. There's more smallness inside of us than there is bigness outside of us. In this story, we are giants. Story number one. Breathing. Have you still got your heart? Have you still got your backside on the ground? Story number two. Because there always is a story there is always some kind of view or worldview that acts whether we recognize it or not 
as some kind of framing for the way we attend. When I come into the meditation hall with a loss of contact with my environment and the walls around me and the floor below and the ceiling above and the other bodies that are here, it may be that I am laboring under an out-of-date worldview that claims that really the important thing is me and this world around me is kind of just the backdrop. It's kind of the backdrop to my process. It's kind of the backdrop to my drama. Check it out. What would it be to relax that view? Take your seat in a cosmos where the final word has not been said, where the final story has not been named, where the interesting and helpful story at times that came from around 1650 onwards by some European scientists that has come to major as the dominant view that this world is the backdrop that I can use and relate to to, for my gain. Maybe we can be free of that too, which doesn't rubbish the science, but sees it as one way of seeing, one helpful way of seeing, but if it becomes a dogma, it cripples our souls. Maybe one more story. I have many here, but I think I'll close with one more. Sense your body. Sense your breath. Your body is an instrument of multiple perceptions with senses that are perfectly primed for this world. Your body, a Buddha's body, an instrument through which you can realize the awakening of a Buddha. Your body, Buddha's body, an instrument through which you can realize and know the awakening of a Buddha. Let's sit together for a minute with that story.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.